Uh, my parents gave me this uh, Methodist hymn book when I was baptised uh, and confirmed. And uh, the reason I brought it with me this morning uh, is uh, not because I'm going to sing to you, as uh, Andrew thought, which is quite a relief to everybody, uh, but because of the inscription in the front inside cover. It reads this, To Paul, on the occasion of your confirmation and baptism, with love from mum and dad, and then it has the date, and then these words, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, uh, my all. Words, of course, from a very famous uh, hymn, When I Survey, which is in this uh, hymn book, and that we'll sing uh, in a moment. You can see that from that inscription early on in my Christian life, I was told that uh, my response to God's amazing love for me at the cross should be one of wholehearted devotion to him. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Being sold out for Jesus is a response to his first loving me. Wholehearted Christian commitment flows out of grace. It is a free response of the truly converted man or woman. Not an attempt to get right with God. He has done that for me on the cross. But having seen all that he has done, wanting to live for him. That is understanding grace and responding rightly to it. A good friend of mine, when he was converted, was keen that his dad also became a Christian and turned to Jesus But as he broached the subject of the gospel with his dad, his dad said this to him, I used to work with people who went to mass and confession and then they went to the brothel. I didn't go to the brothel with them and I didn't care to go to church with them either. Now that is an extreme example, but that is how plenty of people treat the grace of God. I'm forgiven, I can go and do whatever I like, live how I like. But that is not biblical grace, that is cheap grace grace. I'm uh, uh, reading this book at the moment. It's uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Of course, a book that's been out for many, many years, but I've never read it. Uh, And Bonhoeffer describes cheap grace like this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. See, cheap grace, I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter how I live now. I can live however I like, can't I? But biblical grace is not cheap. There's nothing cheap about the grace of God. Oh, for sure, forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. And so properly understood, grace will never encourage the response, I'm forgiven, now I can go and live how I like. No. As I survey the wondrous cross, if I've uh, truly grasped just how amazing grace is, if I'm truly converted, as I survey the wondrous cross, I will think to myself, Lord, You did all that for me, now in response, here's my life, my soul, my all, in wholehearted commitment to you. And it's wholehearted commitment to Christ that is our theme on Sundays uh, through September, morning and evening. Uh, In the mornings we'll be looking at four passages in Mark's Gospel, uh, and in the evenings uh, Andrew will be preaching through four Psalms. So as we turn to the Bible, let me now pray that God would speak to us through his word, that we would be so amazed by grace that we would give our all. Let's pray together. Love so amazing, so divine, 
demands my soul, my life, my all. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, bring us to the point where we long for nothing but yourself, nothing but holiness, nothing but union with you and to do your will. Give us these desires. Stir up in us a a hatred of sin and a love for righteousness. Grow in us a deep dissatisfaction with half-heartedness and an increasing desire to be sold out for you. Enlarge our souls to want more of your likeness. Engage us to live more for you in every area of life. Enthrall us with the cross of Christ that we would increasingly be lost in wonder, love and praise of yourself. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well then Mark chapter 8, page 1012. And verse 34, Jesus called to him along with, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Uh, yeah. Maybe you saw it the first time it was read. Maybe you saw it just now. This passage is all about total, wholehearted commitment to Christ. Deny self. Take up your cross. Lose your life. Do not be ashamed of me, says Jesus. Total commitment in following Jesus Christ. And there are five things that I'd like us to take note of uh, uh, through this passage uh, this morning, all of which are on the, the handout. First, this is a call for all. Again, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. The crowd, the disciples, if anyone, being sold out for Jesus is not something just for the keenies. Being wholehearted in following Christ is not for the elite Christian. It's not just for those who leave the relative comfort of Christchurch forward and, and go as part of a church plant to a tough area of the city. Denying self is not an expectation only for those who are prepared to give up a a well-paid job with brilliant career prospects to get ordained. Taking up your cross is not a command only for those who will leave their home in Britain in order to go out as mission partners to live in poverty in a dangerous country far away. No, Jesus calls for total wholehearted commitment from, do you see it there, anyone who would follow him. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is what it means to follow Jesus. Deny self and take up your cross. Uh, You may come to church, you may speak of a day when you were converted, you may know your Bible pretty well or inside out, but if there is no sacrifice in your life, no sense of dying to self, nothing of taking up your cross in your life, then you are not following Jesus. For if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. First then, this is a call for all. Second, this call is to follow, that is to follow Jesus, which might sound pretty obvious. But what I mean by this is that in following Jesus, we are following where he went. It is actually to follow him. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me. It's about coming after him. And where did he go? Well, he denied himself. He took up the cross. 
So the Christian life is going to be tough. It is going to be a life of suffering. But I fear we have lowered the expectation of what it means to follow Jesus. We have watered down commitment to Christ to praying a prayer of commitment. But actually it's all over the pages of the New Testament. Following Jesus means following in his footsteps, in the footsteps of the one who suffered and died and therefore I should expect to suffer and die. It's what uh, Peter writes in in his first letter. Interestingly, Peter here in in verses um, uh, 32 and 33 denies Jesus, says, "Uh, no Jesus, you're not going to die. No, 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 that's not the way for you. But by the time he writes his letter, he's grown up. He understands not only does Jesus die, but following him means we also are going to suffer and die. So he can write these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Isn't that amazing? You were called, Christian, to suffer for doing good. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We should expect the Christian life to be hard because we are following the one who suffered and died. But more positively under this point, that is also one of the most wonderful things about following the Lord Jesus. We are to follow him. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself did not do. See, how different is Jesus from the leaders of the world, leaders of other religions? I think of the extreme Islamists, the the leaders of Al-Qaeda. Think of Osama bin Laden. He conceived plots and then found recruits to give their lives by driving planes into buildings and strapping explosives to them and then detonating them in busy public places. But where was bin Laden the whole time? Now we know that for years he was safe and and secure, relatively secure in his, his compound in Pakistan with his family around him. He was living a life of relative ease while his followers blew themselves to smithereens. Look at everything happening in Libya right now. Colonel Gaddafi sends his people out onto the streets to fight for him while he hides away. No one knows where he is. Saddam Hussein was the same. Finally found cowering in a pit. Jesus is so wonderfully different, so very different from the leaders of the world. Yes, he calls us to be ready to die for him. Yes, he says that following him will be a life of suffering, but he only calls us to that life when he himself died for us first. And he died a death, of course, that we will never be asked to die, dying the most demanding death that anyone will ever die, bearing upon himself the sin of the world. So yes, this is a call to follow him, which means a life of suffering, but we're not asked to go anywhere that he himself has not already been. He went to the cross. And of course, that is our motivation to live this life of wholehearted commitment. That is the the slightly wider context of this passage. You see verse 31, he then, Jesus then began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed And after that, three days rise again. In in the context of Mark's Gospel, this is really the first time that he he turns his face towards uh, Jerusalem and heading towards the cross. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 32. He says the same thing. The Son of Man must suffer and die. Uh, And so the context here is that I'm going to die on the cross for you. 
And you see, I can only understand and certainly only live the verses that we're looking at, verses 34 to 38, if I have verse 31 as my backdrop. Jesus died for my sin. Verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer. End of verse 31, he must be killed. And I presume here the must here is the must of fulfilling the scriptures. Dying his sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death as it is written in the scriptures. Now that is my motivation for living verses 34 to 38. Jesus died for me. And as I look at love so amazing, so divine, then if I get it, I'll give my soul, my life, my all. It's a call for all. Secondly, it's a call to follow. Third, this call brings life. This call brings life. Verse 34 again. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In the early years of the 20th century, the explorer Ernest Shackleton put a number of advertisements in London newspapers to try and get men to come with him on his polar expeditions. Now the adverts ran like this. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Needless to say, there weren't many many applicants. Now, now at first glance, Christ's appeal here sounds identical. Indeed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Seems like a madness. Sounds like a suicide mission. But listen to this call, and we see this call to die is a call to life. Verse 35 as I lose my life, I find it. You see, give up your life for Jesus, live life sold out for him, and you discover what life is all about. I've uh, met a few people down through the years, maybe you have too, who've who've, uh, gone off travelling around the world in order, as they put it, to find themselves. I've always thought travelling around the world is, is quite a long way to go to find yourself. And, uh, and rather mischievously, I've always wanted to say to people, like I've never actually done it, but I've always wanted to say to them um, that they might take the rather shorter journey to the bathroom to look in the mirror, where I'm sure they will find themselves. But Far more helpful than my rather sarcastic and thoroughly unsympathetic advice are the words of Jesus here. Jesus says you'll find yourself not by travelling the world or by doing anything else for that matter. You'll find yourself as you lose yourself. You find yourself when you follow him and give yourself in service to him which will result in also serving others. There is actually no other way to find yourself. This is not just an alternative way. Travelling the world didn't work. I could try a number of other things of which Jesus is one of them. No, no. Verse 35 is a spiritual law. It is the way the universe has been set up. Notice the word whoever, verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. It's a spiritual law. And allow me to explain for a moment why this is a fundamental spiritual law in our universe. Let me just depart from the text, which is always a bit dangerous, just for a moment, to explain why the universe we live operates this way. See, the one true living God is Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And the persons of the Godhead give themselves to each other all the time. It is intrinsic to who God is. God is a giving God. 
He is at heart sacrificial, looking out for others. The Father gives the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Son gives himself. Jesus said, I lay down my life. The Father gives the Son. The Son gives himself. The Holy Spirit points to the Son and away from himself. So Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me all the time. When we look at the Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, don't look at me, don't focus on me, look at Jesus. All the time deflecting away from himself. Now the Son and the Spirit want to glorify the Father. The Father wants to glorify his Son. Do you see what's happening all the time? All of them, the three persons of the Godhead, give to each other by giving of themselves. It's intrinsic to, to who God is. And so when God created the universe, his character was right at the heart of the world he made. So this is a spiritual law built into the very fabric of the universe. The world works best when I give myself. It's the way it was set up. It goes horribly wrong when I'm selfish and live for myself. And because this is a spiritual law, you cannot um, deny this spiritual law any more than you can deny a physical law. If I stand up on the pulpit and step off, I will fall down. The law of gravity will take care of that. It's a, it's a law in the universe. And in the same way, verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so do you see, far from this being an act of suicide, when I give myself to Jesus wholeheartedly, I find myself. It is the way I find life itself. As soon as I understand this, I see it in my experience. Now just think about your day tomorrow at work. If you fritter your day away, fiddling around on the internet, never really getting down to your work, I can guarantee you, you will go to bed dissatisfied with the day you've lived. But work hard, put others first, give yourself to others and you may fall into bed exhausted but you will be satisfied and probably sleep a lot better for it as well. Mums here, tomorrow as you live your day caring for your little ones, changing nappies, getting the older ones off to school, interrupting all that you would like to be doing to do the school run, to be there when they come home from school, you will be far more satisfied at the end of the day than if you lived your life selfishly for yourself. It is a spiritual law. The same is true for those who are retired. Live your retirement for yourself and you'll drift to your grave ever more dissatisfied with life. But live for others helping your children raise their children or supporting other young families around here or being prepared to leave the comfort of your home, the home that you've worked so hard for all your life, to go and serve Jesus in missionary service. Live that way and you will find life. Life will continue to get better. See, verse 34 sounds like a suicide mission. Go come and die for me, but verse 35 tells me it is in fact the way to life, life in all its fullness. Verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? A call for all, a call to follow, a call that brings life and fourthly, This is a call to die. Verse 34 again. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When um, Jesus first said these words, it must have sent a shiver down 
everyone's spine. Take up your cross. Crucifixion was a Roman punishment. Take up your cross and you'd be walking to your death. And a cruel, humiliating, painful death at that. And some of Jesus' earliest followers did exactly that. They died on crosses for Christ. We have rather cheapened the idea of taking up your cross. Uh, You may complain about a nasty head cold or an awkward boss or, or missing a train and a friend will reply, well, we all have our crosses to bear. Please. Taking up your cross is about dying, not about coping with some minor inconvenience. And around the world today, many of Jesus' followers continue to die just because they bear the name of Christ, just because they are prepared to stand up and say, I'm a Christian. We heard about Christians like that at the prayer meeting on Wednesday. It's so inspiring. Over 2,000 Christian brothers and sisters in Eritrea have been imprisoned in harsh conditions where they're often denied medical help and cut off from their families and some die. It doesn't make the BBC news. But be sure it's happening right now in the 21st century. In Britain, it's unlikely we'll actually be killed for our faith or even imprisoned, although I think that day is getting closer. Andrew and I were talking about it in the vestry before the service. It's unlikely that we'll be killed. We may one day be imprisoned, but we we certainly will find ourselves marginalised if we're going to follow Christ, misunderstood, isolated when we stand for him and his ways. I still remember when I first became a Christian, my dad, who wasn't a Christian at the time, my dad thought it was just a phase I was going through and he encouraged me to tone it down a little, not to take it quite so seriously. Generally, people don't like religious fanatics. You don't want to be called a religious fanatic even, do you? Certainly, people don't like being told that they need to follow Jesus, but that's part of the job. So when we try and tell others the gospel, we are likely to encounter real hostility. But don't be surprised. Jesus' teaching here is is clear. To follow him is a call to die. To die to self, to take up our cross, to be willing to face rejection as we follow him. There are no half measures, you see, with Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask people to take him up as a weekly hobby. To have him as one of a number of important things in your life. I've got lots, lots of important things come above everything else, Jesus is one of them. No, he says that following him is about a a total reorientation of life, that he is everything. And it affects everything to follow him, my time and how I use it, my money and how I spend it, my work and how I approach it, my sexuality and how I view it, uh, my family and how I treat them, my leisure time and what I do with it. No area of life is off limits with Jesus. This is a call to die to self. But as someone said to me some years ago, until you've found something worth dying for, you haven't found anything worth living for. As I lose my life, I find it. A call for all, a call to follow, a call that brings life, a call to die. And at last, this is a call to embrace. That is to embrace Jesus and his word. Look at verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Notice again, it's if anyone. So this is for all of us to hear. I've studied this passage a number of times before and always wondered why this verse comes here as it does. Now for sure, Jesus is saying, uh, have an eternal perspective. 
He's saying, think of the long term. As you think about following me, consider the fact that, that I will return one day in my Father's glory, so don't be ashamed of me. I think I've understood that eternal perspective before, but this last week I began to see why Jesus' words, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, why they are here. You see, following Jesus is all bound up with the word of God. I wonder if you see how the passage works. You see, he's called the crowd and his disciples to him and then made this immense declaration of what it means to follow him, denying self, taking up your cross, and then he says, verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words... His words, you see, here is where the sacrifice begins. Here's where the denying of self begins, by thinking differently from the world, by having Jesus' word, the word of God, change the way I think. Changing the way I think in relation to the world around me. As Jesus puts it in verse 38, the sinful and adulterous world that is around me. Now the Bible will tell me how I should think when it comes to Human sexuality, materialism, gender roles and distinctives. The Bible will tell me how to think about my money and my family and my work and my leisure. You see, the world around me will constantly tell me to pamper myself, to live for myself. The Bible will tell me uh, why and how I should deny myself and live for God and for others. I need to keep coming back to the Bible because I'll keep hearing the world saying something else. But as I come to the Bible, I will be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and his word. Because the message of the Bible isn't popular. Especially things like the exclusive claim of Christ. Now, I took a funeral on, uh, on Thursday this week and said these words at the funeral. John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. There isn't another way to heaven but through Jesus. You stand up for the uniqueness of Christ and you'll be accused of being intolerant, a fundamentalist bigot. Or take the Bible's teaching that sex is only to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. The Bible says it is that special. Stand for that and at best you'll be considered old-fashioned and more often than not you'll be seen as being narrow-minded and frigid. Or take the Bible's approach to money and materialism. It is so at odds at the world that we live in, especially here in affluent Fullwood. There's nothing wrong with living here in Fullwood. I'm just saying that we live in a part of the world where the accumulation of wealth, if not the goal of life, it is considered to be crucial if we're to have a successful and happy life. That's the message we're going to be hearing all the time. The Bible's going to say something else about our wealth and about wealth accumulation. So I need to keep coming to the Bible to think differently on wealth. And in the church right now, the issue of gender roles is a very live topic. The Bible will say something quite different to the way the world thinks. And I'm going to have to have the Bible inform my mind if I'm going to get these things right. And so it would be very easy, you see, to go with the world on all these issues and be ashamed of Jesus' words. And don't make a distinction between Jesus and his words. If I'm ashamed of his words, I'm ashamed of him. Which is why he says what he does. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. See, it is in turning to Jesus' words to the Bible that I will live a life of sacrifice and wholehearted commitment 
and not be ashamed of him. That is why, unashamedly, we will always continue to have the Bible at heart as the most important thing in all our meetings here at Christchurch Forward. How else can I expect to hear God speak to me? How else can I get my mind right when the world is telling me the opposite? And that's why I'm so thrilled that there are more than 700 of us us here in small groups beginning again this September. Groups where we can study the word of God together. Chase up the application of sermons in the environment of a loving group of committed Christians who will spur us on to live as we should. I find it so much easier to live this out when others are saying, come on, let's do it together. That's what small groups are about. In small groups we can be committed to standing against the world and living God's way. Isn't it thrilling? 700 people committed to that. That gives me great heart. So at the beginning of this... um, New year, as it were, new academic year when we kind of all fresh after holidays and we've got a spanking new fresh start. Be a person committed to studying, understanding and living out the word of God. Standing against the sweeping currents of the world's thinking. Then you'll not be ashamed of him. And he, verse 8, verse 38, won't be ashamed of you when he comes in his father's glory. A call for all, a call to follow Jesus, a a call that brings life, a call to die, a call to embrace. You see, this is a call, the call to follow him, this call is to a wholehearted commitment to Christ. But while it sounds scary and, and even, frankly, to the outside, a madness, it is the only way to really live. And far from being madness, it is the most sane approach to life we could ever have. 4, verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Lose your soul, you've lost everything. Jim Elliot, the Christian missionary who uh, was martyred for his faith in Christ, uh, said the words that are on the bottom of the handout here. He is... No fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot wrote those words and then lived those words. He understood the Jesus words here in verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. He understood verse 36. What good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? He answered the question of verse 37, what can a man exchange, give in exchange for his soul? Let's uh, understand these words as well. And let's in this next week try and focus on verse 34. Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone, anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, in just a moment, we're going to sing uh, this great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Before we do, uh, with your uh, handout still in your hand, let me just encourage you to uh, turn it over and to see that on the back of the handout, uh, I've written down uh, something for you to do in reflection to this sermon for the next seven days. You don't have to do it, uh, but Andrew and I and other members of the staff have been thinking over this last year or so that that too often uh, we all listen to a sermon and then move on move on to the next Bible study or whatever and don't uh, really allow it to 
to, to, to seep into our hearts. Maybe uh, if you're not sure what to do in your quiet times, or maybe you never even have a time of prayer and Bible study, you've never done that before, why don't you start using this very simple uh, seven-day outline, reading through this passage and thinking about a different aspect each day. Um, tell me if that's useful. Uh, would I need to carry on doing it or whether it's not useful at all and I'll, I'll just stop. I'll go quietly into my corner again and never do it again and bother you with it. Well, let's uh, sing now together. When I survey the wondrous cross and we'll sing this in preparation for taking communion in response to the sermon and uh, it might be that some of you are saying, I don't think I can sing this wholeheartedly at the moment. Well, well, sing it as a prayer that you would one day be ready to give your soul, your life, your all. Let's stand as we sing.